Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. A very happy Feast of Easter to all of you podcast listeners. To all of our Western listeners, He is risen. And to many of our Eastern listeners, a blessed Holy Week to you and a very happy Pascha when it comes. And actually, as a little side note, The Simpsons has this little funny homage to this characteristic of the Christian calendar. So just Google Simpsons Orthodox Easter and have a little laugh. Something else that's happening this week, tomorrow, actually, if you're tuning in on the day this episode airs, Friday, April 22nd is also Earth Day. Our celebration of the Lord's passion and victory over death and destruction coincides with Earth Day. So in light of the upcoming Lambeth focus on creation and the persistent calls to mutual loving sacrifice, prayer, and stewardship of the earth from Archbishop Justin, Presiding Bishop Michael, Pope Francis, the Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew, among other local leaders around the world, we are recognizing this Easter slash Earth Day week coincidence in a couple of ways. First, in our daily devotionals, the Living Church puts out, if you didn't know this, a free online devotional every day. Authors include archbishops, stay-at-home moms, theologians, pastors, teachers, people from all kinds of walks of life from around the world, great writers, short reflections on one of the day's daily office lectionary readings from the BCP. And this week, our author is the Reverend Dr. Rachel Mash. She is environmental coordinator of the Anglican Church of Southern Africa. She was also a guest on podcast episode number 60, Green Anglicans, an introduction. She's been reflecting on the connection this week between Easter and creation. And I'd suggest you check it out on our website, livingchurch.org. If you want to, you can also sign up to receive our daily devos by clicking the link in the show notes. The second thing that we're doing this week is we're going to plunge deep into the topic of creation and Christianity on today's episode. So lucky you. 
will be in conversation with a good friend of the Living Church, the Reverend Canon Dr. Mark Clavier. Mark is residentiary canon of Brecon Cathedral in Wales, beautiful, beautiful place, where he also directs Convivium, an initiative to foster a vision of the church that stands apart from consumerism. He is a regular contributor to BBC Radio Wales and The Living Church, and he spends a lot of his free time walking. His most recent book is A Pilgrimage of Paradoxes, A Backpacker's Encounters with God and Nature, and we'll stick a link to that book in the show notes today. Mark and his wife, historian Dr. Sarah Ward-Clavier, have been on our show before. Actually, also their dogs have been on our show, Humphrey and Cuthbert, who provided the howling sound effects for our 2021 Halloween episode. But I didn't bring the dogs on today. I brought Mark on today because his work as a pastor and even his conversion as a Christian has had so much to do with the earth, especially with landscape and preserving and loving local environments. So much of his call has been wrapped up in watching God reveal his character through the woods of South Carolina, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and then the Brecon Beacons and the byways of Wales. Today, we'll talk about his travels, about being bowled over by God's glory, about medieval bestiaries, about living as Christians in climate apocalypse, and of course, we're going to talk about Wendell Berry. And another coincidence, Monday, April 25th is going to be the Feast of St. Mark. So let's get on with our conversation with our own friend and brother Mark and listen together for God's healing word to our world. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So I see, let me just say, I see this beam and you and Sarah both, when you record for the podcast or you're on a call with me, it seems like you're both, you both use this same room in your house and it has this beam going across the ceiling. So yeah. is this like an original beam of a really old house? Yeah. Pretty yeah. My guess is, my guess is it's older than the United States. So. Okay. Well then m- most things are, I <laughs> admit most things are. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here today with us. Oh, it's good to be here. Good to see you. Now, today we're going to be talking about creation. We're going to be talking about nature. And I want to start off with your love of nature, kind of your your calling to environmental awareness and how that weaves in with your ministry. But first, I want to say, even though we are having this conversation kind of in co-preparation for Lambeth and what the bishops will be talking about there in a few months, but also just because this is a topic that we we both enjoy. If you're going to have a podcast, you, you want to talk about things that you also enjoy. So where did this come from for you, your, your love of creation, of getting out in nature, and your awareness of its significance in the economy of God? It was sort of a long evolution. So I, I probably its 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 roots or its seeds were were growing up and going camping. Um, very often, our, our family holidays, more often than not, was camping in various places. In, in first of all, South Carolina, but but then later on in in Florida. Uh, and I always loved camping. And I would uh, my my parents were probably a little too um, free with allowing me to roam. And I would just head off down 
trails and paths and 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 go off trail uh even doing silly things of swimming in rivers where you knew there were alligators in and things florida like that. mark in florida yeah, yes in florida in florida i never told my mother dangerous. about this I know. I never told mom about this. Sorry, mom, if you're if you're listening. Um, uh, but I, I I I just loved it. And then when I was about fourteen or fifteen, my parents bought what we euphemistically called a cabin uh, in Pisgah National Forest. But there I would go also, just roaming for for hours uh, out into the into the woods. So I I always had this. I almost felt more at home. Uh, in the woods or uh, in a, a swamp in Florida or, you know, just out in what we call nature, though I think we, we, we have to be careful of talking about the stuff out there is nature and somehow we're not part of nature. But being out in the, in the countryside or in the wilderness uh, and the wilder, the, the, the better. But then it, it, when I went off to university, I didn't I didn't do a lot outdoors then, and then I became completely sedentary, um, all the way to the point where, uh, you know, by sort of 2004 or somewhere around there, I was I was a good 230 pounds, uh, and and spent far too much time either in front of a computer or on the sofa, uh, and the closest thing I have had to a conversion experience was. Out of the blue, one autumn, I decided I would go hiking up in the Shining Rock Wilderness in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, it was a beautiful autumn day. I think there was just part of me, the old camper and explorer that had just welled up. And I didn't think anything was going to come of it. Just go for an hour drive, park at this place called, uh, um, well, that led to Ivester Gap, uh, and have just a nice walk. And it was that, but as I was walking along this road and I went through this forest that was like something out of Tolkien with all the colorful leaves and the light filtering through, uh, and I came out on what's called Iverster Gap, which gives you pretty close to a 360 degree panorama of, of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And, and something powerful welled up in me. It's something just indescribable, except that I would later kind of associate it with delight, but an overwhelming delight. Uh, and and that, that literally changed my life. It got me interested in the idea of delight, which led me to leave a very successful ministry in Western North Carolina and move my family to the UK so I could spend three years doing my doctorate on delight. And from that, I began... I began to get a sense, sort of that love of nature came together with my theological musings, and it and it really took a while. I, I would say it's only been uh, probably in the last six, seven years that uh, they've come together. And, it, and uh, I would say instrumental in that was not only my, my theological exploration of delight and, and enjoying the other for its own sake, um, but then encountering the writings, as so many people have, of Wendell Berry. And this Wendell Berry both gave me a way of kind of engaging with, with nature and, and humanity's place in nature that resonated with, with 
my own observations about delight and the way it functions in Scripture, but also made me more aware than I had been previously of of conservation and the damage that we're doing to the world and and what's called environmentalism. So, and then I would say the final ingredient, uh, and it you know looking back on it as this journey, what's coming to Wales, uh, and what Wales did was. Um, there's something about the Welsh landscape, which is which is gorgeous, which is beautiful, with that has a mixture of places that are fairly wild, sitting within deeply historical landscapes. Often, where I go walking here, is is near a standing stone, mine uh, Elia, and mine Elia has been there. You know, off the top of my head, I would say since something like 3000 BC. Uh, just just standing there since the Bronze Age. So there's you know layers of history there and of human engagement with a particular landscape that's just beyond anything we can. I was going to say anything we can imagine in America, but you know to be honest, even people here can't imagine it. It begins to waken one to a whole different way of engaging the world in which we live then we are taught through the kind of globalized consumer culture that that shapes us now. What you're describing, Mark, is this one place that humans have been remaining in and returning to for thousands of years now, at least 5,000 years, if not more. Yep. And this is a place, and, and humans do that when when they have delight in a place, as you said, when they feel impelled for some reason to be in a place as you did, uh, you know, the experience that you had in the Blue Ridge Mountains that you said was like a conversion experience where you were filled with with delight. So there's something about love and desire. And maybe we're getting into a little bit of your work with Augustine now. <laughs> but yes, yeah. there's there's something about that that brings people back to certain places over and over and over. And what you're describing is this return to one particular location. It's extremely specific, extremely local. And that that experience you're saying is what can really help broaden us and broaden yeah. our imaginations for our relationship with uh, with history, with other humans, with a landscape. Whereas you mentioned globalization, ironically, is something that can narrow our perspective. Significant. I, I wonder if you could connect that. If you could do a little theological work on the fly and say, what do you, what do you think is happening there? And does this have some relation to your own what you called conversion experience? I mean, what's the what's the spiritual layer here that you would point to? One of the things uh, I I write about that that only kind of occurred to me as I was reflecting on my experiences of walking in in Wales, is is landscapes have, in a sense, their own personality. It could be a great big landscape. It could be like Snowdonia or, or the, the Blue Ridge Mountains or the Brecon Beacons, or it could be something as, as small as uh, a particular farm track uh, skirting the edge of barley fields with, with oaks on the other side in early autumn. So in that way, they're like friends, but they're like friends who never change, um, or you hope they never change. And I think there's something almost primordial about 
engaging with these unchanging landscapes that have their own personality are bigger than us that we unless we you know with the help of machinery and stuff really do damage to it that we we can't really shape there's not much i can do to a mountain there's not much i could do to that that um, black balsam mountain in the um uh, blue ridge mountains but it ha- it affected me uh it 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 had uh, as much of an impact on me as somebody else might have but in a landscape that's unchanging and and in that kind of pull between a personality, something that's deeply personal, yet unchanging, I think that then disposes us towards the divine and concepts of the divine that are harder for us to grab hold of when we're in a consumer culture where things are changing all the time, where we flatten out personality. Uh, And so I think we almost need these landscapes not only to have uh, to be disposed towards seeing the divine, but I would argue also to to really be able to uh, uh, to to live into our own humanity. There's there's a Christian understanding of of there's the book of scripture and the book of nature. These are two ways that we can we can understand who God is and and interpret and discern the revelation of Jesus Christ also. And that if, if the book of nature is diminished, we have scripture, we still have the Christian community, but there are so many ways that God has been revealing himself. There's such a thick, thick foundation that he already laid before humans even came on the landscape. And, and this, this thickness, the sense of thickness, the thickness of our lives, the thickness of our being situated in one place rather than the other the ability to learn relationships. Like there's something about relationships that landscapes can teach us. There's, there's a loss there, um, which gosh, I want this whole podcast episode to be about loss, but I mean, the, the richness and the thickness that affect our ability even to, would you say it affects our ability to be, Christian, does it affect our ability to be fully Christian? You'd hate to think that the the kind of social environment and fabric we're born into would make our ability to be Christian somehow thinner or less textured or more shallow. Does it? Does does can the power of the Holy Spirit sort of directly acting and intervening in our lives make up the difference? of, of gifts that we may have lost? Where, what do you think about that? I struggle with that question, yeah. Mark. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it, and, and it is a hard one. I do think we have, I think we have attenuated the faith, this, this idea, our fundamental kind of belief in the human will bent against nature and overcoming nature. Uh, and, and, you know, you could, you could, write lots on on that whole idea that we somehow the purpose of humanity is to rise above nature and i think it was tolkien in a wonderful letter somewhere uh, sees the source of that in our fear of death that that in our in our refusal to accept our own mortality we try to overcome everything around us and not not least because i think some of these things then give rise to uncomfortable questions you know what does it mean to be more accepting of death or to say 
that suffering is part of this life. Uh, and certainly, and, and especially what does that mean for us in the West to be saying those kinds of things? I think those kind of questions are becoming inescapable uh, as the climate crisis and things like the pandemic reveal to us that we're not quite the masters or not quite as protected uh, and secure as we as we have uh, have thought. So there's that side of it. Um, another thing that I think reveals the attenuation of of the Christian faith, or at least of the church community and its and its role within creation. I was talking about just recently, where if you look at pre-modern writings, you find these wonderful things that show nature itself responding uh, to uh, to what Christ has done, responding specifically to to Easter, or the Anglo-Saxon poem, The Dream of the Rood, in which the cross is not this cold instrument of torture, but has its own nobility because it was once a tree. Uh, and even and it and it's been abused by humanity by mm. human beings turning mm. it into gallows, mm. but it's not it's not degraded by that and and, mm. and instead uh, becomes a noble throne for 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 uh, King Jesus as it as it were. You see these things over and over again. I was reading excerpts from a bestiary where it was saying, you know, the lions did uh, this, that, or the other, and this reveals something about the Trinity or about Christ's birth. Or, and, and to us, they're, they're kind of absurd, but it just reveals an imagination that is so convinced of the reality of, of, of God and of, and of Christ's uh, ministry that they're, they're disposed to see it all around them. Uh, and that's a whole different way with engaging with creation than we do now. It, it is. And I have to put out, I have to put a shout out here for this poem that if you have not read it, take a look at it. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. But it's, I think it's sort of a work of genius. The Jubilate Agno by Christopher oh, right. Smart that begins, for I will consider my cat Jeffrey. And this is a guy who was sitting in, in prison, may have even been in an insane asylum. He had a cat in there with him. And he wrote this ode to his cat, which is actually an ode to God and to Jesus Christ, saying, here's how the glory of God is revealed in this animal, the only other creature that I share this cell with. Um, oh, yeah. And it's, have you, have you read this? No, I haven't. No. Okay. Okay, no, for I'll I will to, consider my it. cat Jeffrey, for he is the servant of the living God, duly and daily serving him. <laughs> it's like ah. it goes on and on. Um, so take a look at it; it's delightful. Getting an Easter basket from my parents at my age really not embarrassing. Once they realize that I'm more into like Ferrero Rocher, not so much into jelly beans, we have had a pretty good understanding. This is part of our celebration of Easter, even if somewhat ironically, and it's one of the things that we share as a family. Today, I want to encourage you to think about your family of faith at Easter time, especially in the Anglican communion, and consider an Easter gift to the Living Church. We are a nonprofit ministry. We rely on donations to continue bringing erratic and incisive journalism, theology, book and art reviews, cultural analysis, and learning and relationship-building opportunities for clergy and lay leaders in a uniquely Catholic, evangelical, and ecumenical way. 
To support what we do, you can go to livingchurch.org forward slash donate and give now or learn about creative giving options like gifts of stock and bequests. We're not picky about what you decide to put in our Easter basket, and we're so grateful to you for considering a gift. Again, that's livingchurch.org forward slash donate or just click the link in the show notes. So I think one question that a lot of people have and and will be one of the things that the bishops will be wrestling with at Lambeth is how should or how could Christians be during this time um, of uh, climate change and um, environmental, real environmental crisis? How can Christians be, be faithful, of course, but also how can our lives just be? What what makes our lives rich? What does Jesus Christ do in the church? What makes us any different? There's so many ways in which we're we're not any different from, you know, all the other human beings in the world, and that's a beautiful thing. But from what I hear you you saying, it sounds like you're saying that one thing Christians can be is just simply more natural. That in if we lived in a in a world in which we were really infused with the life of the Holy Spirit and obeying the Lord in a, in a more perfect way, Christians might be the most natural people in the world. It's, it's not just about getting people to heaven uh, as a kind of way of escaping creation. Uh, as I often tell people here, if the whole purpose of Christ's ministry is to enable us to escape creation— then it means the problem that arose in Genesis, i.e. the fall, is is never overcome. It, it just becomes a big rescue plan for uh, for humanity away from the good creation God originally created, um, but then went bad. That, that if the story is going to end with a happy ending, then that problem of the spoiling of creation has to be addressed and overcome. Uh, if we're not at least back to how it was in Eden, then then in some way evil and corruption wins. It's and, a know, view of script- redemption which sweeps back to the very beginning and says all yep. of this, all yep. of this is being swept into the saving power of Jesus. Yep, precisely, precisely. And I think it's, uh, I, I think key moments in scripture that, that you can trace that line uh, along here are things like the way that, uh, depending on your perspective, either you see the Holy of Holies uh, in, the, in the newly built temple built to look like Eden, or what's probably more the case is the story of Eden arises from how the Holy of Holies was, was, was designed with pomegranates and palm trees and, 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 and all the rest. Um, uh, and, and then we have the tree of life at the beginning and we have the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations at the end of Revelation. Uh, and then the linchpin moment in all this uh, is wonderfully portrayed in John where Christ is encountered on Easter morning in a garden. Uh, and if we're too thick to see the residents of Eden uh, there in new creation, what does Mary mistake him for being but a gardener uh, and the whole idea of the, of the new Adam. So, so you get in all of this in a way that in some ways it's, it's amazing we became blind to it, how obvious it is that creation is included in redemption. 
So that's the first thing. It's our ministries need to include creation. And there's all sorts of ways of doing that. You know, here at Brecon Cathedral, we've got our Convivium initiative that tries to engage people with ideas about living within creation and creation care uh, and, and with conserving both, both local landscapes and environments, but also the heritage as well, the way that people have engaged healthily with the landscapes in which we live. We've got the Cathedral Green Minds project that is working with um, Brecon Mind, which helps people struggling with their mental health. But they're doing this through gardening and teaching traditional gardening methods uh, and and sustainable forms of gardening. Uh, We're doing things to improve the biodiversity of the cathedral grounds. Um, and, uh, And then we're part of what's quite big here in the UK, but I don't think it's really caught uh, taken off in the states yet, but Eco Church, which really gets churches, it's it's kind of a tick box exercise, but it no, really gets no, what churches. Is this? To, what is this, Mark? Yeah, What's so, Eco Church. I've not heard so, of this. Yeah, so so Eco Church is part of an international organization called uh, Arosha, uh, and oh, Arosha. Yes, we had yeah. Arosha on. We uh, we had an episode that was focusing on um, Arosha. We had. We actually had uh, Mark on the show and talked to him, but I had not heard of, we didn't talk about EcoChurch. Okay, yeah. So EcoChurch is a thing very much here in the UK where churches can can register and, and, it, and it asks you a whole series of questions from what are you doing to um, support uh, sustainability in your churches? How are your churches doing things that are, you know, like recycling, um, that uh, promote sustainability? Have you looked at your um, investments to ensure that they're ethically invested? Um, uh, questions along that to how is creation um, included within your worship? Uh, what are you doing to to promote uh, within your congregation to teach them about creation? So there's all these things, and you can. It, it's as I say, it's a bit of a tick box exercise, but it's a kind of a tick box exercise that gets people to start thinking about these issues and actually taking some practical steps. Then it's getting them to do the kind of things that human beings were created to do. Adam and Eve, they they tended and kept. The, the garden. Um, uh, it, can, it can be art, it can be traditional crafts, it can be any number of things. But this, this begins to get people to engage their faith with the creation that is around them, that teaches them a care for, for place, to, to get to know and love the places where they, they live. But how much harder it is in America. In America, we've, we've got a long history of eradicating place of taking a place that's got its own personality and then making it look like everywhere else in in America. Uh, and the kind of suburban sprawl and fast food joints. And uh, I'm, I'm always struck when I go back to America. And that's one of the things I think where the church could be much more vocal in America is in the redemption of local places and that redemption being protecting their distinctiveness uh, and, and perhaps rediscovering the distinctiveness of those places. Yeah, by all means, like let's please invite people and and see it, you know, as many people as possible coming through those pearly gates. But where do pearls come from? <laughs> yeah, come yes. From oysters. Yes. So I think the description in Revelation is that this is 
it's carved of a single pearl. Like that is an enormous oyster. And where is this? Like, where, let's. I'm just gonna get a little literal here. Where is this oyster coming from? Like the 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 reality that's described in Revelation, even to the pearly gates, is a world in which things, creatures ecosystems, a level of redemption and a level of health that we can't even imagine, um, which in this image could produce an oyster, which could produce a pearl, which the gates of heaven could be carved out of. I mean, that may sound a little silly, but I'm sorry. This image of a gate carved out of a single pearl is in the Bible. So you get you get a lot of people. In fact, I've been at I've been at things where people say the, the church doesn't really have a, anything unique to offer here. Uh, that in some ways we're in a position more of learning from the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get that. And then on the other hand, you get, you get people almost go to the other extreme that, uh, that so take up the cause of environmentalism that th- they become a bit self-righteous about it uh, mm. and, 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 and don't accept that, that actually, as I often say, we have to accept that the world that was created that has led to things like the climate crisis and the mass killing off of, of animal life. And then I think this all goes um, hand in glove, the, 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 the extreme harm done to the global South in the midst of all this done by Christians, the European civilization that was formed by Christianity has done this. Uh, and, and and the word for that, I would say, is heresy that we have as a, as a broad civilization embraced a heretical form of Christianity that forget about Arianism and Gnosticism and all those bad heresies of the past. This was a heresy that has done incalculable harm to the planet. Uh, and if it's doing harm to God's creation, then we have to call it by what it is. And then what it is, is it's heresy. And one of the Beautiful things of the, um, the writer um, um, Paul Kings North, uh, who's gone through a kind of conversion. Well, he has gone through a conversion experience from being a uh, a, a secular environmentalist to now being uh, a, a Russian Orthodox kind of New Wendell Berry type wow, type person. Wow, that's amazing. But one of his things is is to is to say that you know none of us can be self righteous. We're we're all so deep in the muck of this, this particular form of corruption, the harm that we have done to the planet and continue to do to the planet within a civilization that depends on doing all that harm, that none of us can pretend to be clean. Um, and, you know, we should be comfortable with that because that's what we Christians have been saying, at least rightly, for a long time, that, that all of us are very far, far gone from righteousness, as, as the um, 39 Articles put it. So we, we should be comfortable with that recognition and knowing that we can't do that. But we, we live in a world that's so polarized that we want to be among the righteous, among the right. So we've got these two things going on, those who say the church has nothing new to offer and those who um, want to say that we're, we're, we're now getting it all right and we can look down on these, these benighted souls out there who are obstructing everything. Uh, and people can map those things out along the political spectrum as they like. But I think that the church has a fundamental mission and really an opportunity for a kind of evangelism that we've not been able to do for, for generations. Ah, yeah. Tell me, about, tell me about that because I have that same feeling and others are saying that as well. So how are you, 
how are you seeing that? What are you thinking and, and sort of projecting out, but also how are you seeing signs of it already in, in your own ministry of, of pastoral care and evangelism where you are in Wales? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, and this is where we have to be careful because we can yield to the dark forces in the world, but there is a combination now of fear, uh, anxiety uh, about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, And this has all been heightened by the pandemic. Uh, Mm -hmm. Regret about the past, regret Mm -hmm. about the world that we're going to be living to our, uh, leaving to our children, anger, but they, they are generating the kind of questions that people weren't asking a generation ago uh, and the kind of reflections about how the world is currently ordered that a generation ago when people, the people are asking those sort of things were considered to be sort of weirdos. Um, and, and, and so this is oper- opening up opportunities for conversations that you couldn't have not that long ago. And I think we really are seeing a kind of crumbling of civilization. Uh, and, and that's going to hurt the church insofar as we bought into that. And then that wonderful passage again in Revelation where, you know, the heavenly Jerusalem and the tree of life and the healing of the nations and everything. And that great line, God's place is among mortals. Uh, and that's, that's all driving us, I think, to what I call a nuptial understanding of, of um, Christian ministry. And that nuptial ministry is that God created creation in order to be his temple, his, his home, as it, as it were. And, and, and scripture just drives us back over and over again to this idea of the infinite somehow inhabiting the finite. Um, and, and we see it par excellence in Christ himself. But it is this holding together of heaven and earth, of saying to the world, um, that which God has brought together, let no one put asunder. Uh, and unless we make central to our understanding of being Christians, the, this, this deep connection between God and man, God and creation and creation uh, and its creator, then we haven't even begun to leave the starting gates of what it is our mission as, as not just as Christians, but as human beings. I think you're right in the sense that we haven't even after 2000 years, there are some distances that some of us have gone. And many of those people are known as saints, but there are so many distances that we haven't gone or possibilities that, that are just starting to open up. And this is turning the corner into, I think the, possibility and the the hopes that could be made manifest in a time of of deep crisis um where you said there are a lot of a lot of dark things to face and to name and to wrestle with but that as as Christians we're not just wrestling in the darkness or or falling prey to it absolutely not we are united with the one who was resurrected from the grave so at the end of all this, there's there's a laugh, there's a joy. It's a it's a nuptial image because it's a we're ending in a wedding feast, right? How do we face this with a a boldness that says I'm I'm not afraid of death because I I know to whom I belong, but then also 
as you mentioned, this deep ability to abase ourselves and to repent in, in the service of repentance, not in the service of being enthralled to shame, because that's not Christian, but in, in service of saying, because I'm not afraid of death, I'm not afraid of dying to myself for one thing, and maybe to start with. And that means I'm not afraid to give up comforts, which is not even yet dying. And he, the writer of Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted temptation to the point of shedding your blood. Come on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah. There is a ways to go, you know, with this great cloud of witnesses behind us. So how does, how do we do this? How do we take this from the level of talking about it on a podcast to letting it start to hit the ground thoughtfully in our own vocations as ministers of the gospel and, and Christian leaders? So I, I, the first thing I would say is the only way we can be inoculated against the fear of death is, is by grace. Even if the worst case, case scenario doesn't happen, there's going to be suffering on a level that we've, we've not known in, in the past. Um, and, and I actually think a, way, a, a certain level of accepting that that's how it's going to be um, is, is not un, altogether unhealthy um, because I think the fear of that suffering is, is driving some sectors of environmentalism uh, in a direction, especially technologically, um, that is, is dehumanizing. Um, and, uh, and, and may very well seek solutions in the very uh, areas that have given rise to all the, the problems. So I think we just have to kind of go, you know, fear is going to be there and anxiety is going to be there. But, we're not, but by God's grace, we're not going to be laid, flattened by it. And, and in some sense, too, and in some sense, too, like if, if God would give us, if, if he will give us the grace, of, of being less and less afraid of death. And we have to pray for that supernatural grace. We really do. If we receive it, then we will receive opportunities to practice it, A. But then B, we also can become willing, even in small ways, to pay the costs of a natural life, which would mean a life that's not to a damaging extent artificially protected from our, what Ephraim Radner calls our skinfulness, our, our, our mortality, all the textures of our mortality, and bearing the consequences of the fall, which will not be completely taken away until the Lord returns and, and reveals the next stage of his, of, of his life with us. So we're, you know, we can bear, by God's grace, we can bear more, which is sobering. There's yeah, a way and, just like, oh, it's exciting, but it's also like, ooh, that's also so Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not least because we've, we've, not, we've not developed the, the practices in our church communities to bear each other's burdens in that meaningful way mm. so that we're not facing this suffering and anxiety mm. alone mm. Um, uh, or the practices that r- respond to it. I mean, it could be a, something as simple as as encouraging more community meals within a congregation. Well, one of the unhealthy and one of the historically strange practices we have is that we all eat individually, you know, in our little nuclear families. And, and a church community is a wonderful place to have the opportunity for, for more people to come together, share 
their food in a way that is, is a more sustainable way and gives rise to community and hospitality and all these things that are, are fruits of the Spirit. So there's any number of things there that we, we, need to, we need to begin to embrace as church communities as a way of really living in the places where we, we are. But one of, the words, one of the words you said there is, I think, is a key one, and it's the fall. Uh, and a lot of people have said that we li- we're living in a period now where we've rediscovered the fall without rediscovering redemption. Uh, hmm. And when I think one of the one of the callings, one of the vocations of the church right now, and one of the ways that I think will help us keep hold of of hope and and love, is by learning to be a people who don't just receive redemption, but are agents of redemption. And redemption not just of people, but of the places where we, we live. Um, that we are, we are active agents in this world of, of redeeming what has been damaged and, and corrupted. Uh, Wendell Berry, I can't believe I've you know, gone better part of an hour without mentioning Wendell Berry, but he, he has this wonderful you term. Mark, convivi- you <laughs> I know. <laughs> you did. This wonderful, <laughs> this wonderful term, conviviality, um, from which I, I took the, the title of our initiative here, Convivium, of living well with God, creation, and, and each other. But for him, conviviality is living in a way that heals or improves the, the places where we, we live. Uh, and I think under that's, at the heart of that is the notion of redemption. Um, and, and what would it mean for our church communities to be not just places where people go to, to, to have scripture read at them, to, to warble out some probably dreadful hymns, uh, eat far too much at coffee hour, uh, and, 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 and be self-congratulatory about being Anglicans or, 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 or going to heaven, but, but places that are actually working to redeem the places where they live, and there's a deeply, there's a deeply Catholic um, quality to that. That we are, we are the outposts of the kingdom of God in the places where we live. But there's also something uniquely Anglican about it, as expressed through the old parochial system. That that the whole mission of that of that church is that that little geographical area, like it or not. God has placed you there, and it's among that place and that landscape, among those people within that landscape, that you're going to develop your relationship with God and work out in a fearful and wonderful way what that redemption means to you. And, and we, we shouldn't forget this, uh, though we often do, that, minister, that Christ's ministry to the world took the form of a ministry to a place and a specific people within. That's right. Place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, it's one of the absurd, almost comical things about Christianity is that we believe that the guy who is the linchpin of history that was God and man devoted his, his entire ministry of a whopping three years to a tiny strip of land that in the ancient world was the back end of beyond. Um, and his, he, he didn't ever feel, as far as we know, the call to go you know, to Rome or to the seats of power. It was to a specific landscape, a tiny area. But it was through what he accomplished within that tiny area that then the whole world, uh, the whole cosmos was changed and redeemed. 
I've been talking today with the Reverend Canon Doctor Mark Clavier. Do I have that? Did I say it in the right order? Yeah, you got it right. Okay, you got it right. My okay, son great. says it's ridiculous when you got you got more words in the in your title than you have in your name. But <laughs> it's better for someone to know that about themselves. <laughs> Mark, it was a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for this conversation and for your time and for your ministry. Ah, it's been a joy and a delight. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Living Church Podcast, a ministry of The Living Church Institute. And thanks to those of you who sent me your feedback about the show. A special thanks this week to Emily and Parker. I am tweaking and planning new episodes in light of your comments, so keep them coming. Email me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org to let me know how you're enjoying this podcast or what you think we could give you more of. And in two weeks, get yourself right back here for a smashing dialogue with Sister Priscilla Wright, the last living Episcopal deaconess, and Dr. Phyllis Zagano, Catholic scholar of women's leadership in the church and a member of the Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.